Hello, and welcome to I Am Dad podcast with your fatherhood authority, Kenneth Braswell. 30 minutes of wisdom, information, resources, and nuggets to help you on your fatherhood journey. Or maybe you're just curious and want to hear some real talk about fatherhood, family, and the minds of men. Well, guess what? We got you too. Sit back, grab your pad and pen, and maybe even bring a little something to sip on. Enjoy 30 straight minutes of fatherhood, family, and fun with the fatherhood authority. Kenneth Braswell. Welcome to I Am Dad Podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Braswell, and I'm here at ERISA. Um, conference is taking place here in Savannah, Georgia. It is their Diamond Anniversary 60th, 60th anniversary, and I've met some incredible people here. Sat in some workshops, and the intention was to come here and Engage. I did a workshop the other day, but I've met so many incredible people. I said, you know what? They asked me to bring the podcast here, and I said, okay. I said, I don't know when I'm going to get time to do it, but I'm just going to carve out a day and just knock them all out, about four or five of them. That'll be good for. And then I met Judge Corpening yesterday, and I sat in on his workshop, Trauma and You. And if any of you have followed or are following the Responsible Fatherhood space now, you know that conversation now is deeply into mental health and trying to understand um, how do we serve these fathers and take into consideration um, that their mental health and well-being. But what I was so interested in his presentation and I was trying to was juggling because there were so many workshops I was going 15 minutes here, 15 minutes here, 15 minutes here. And then when I sat in his I was like man I wish I was here the whole time. But he was talking about trauma, but it was so interesting because he was talking about it from the perspective of being a judge. And I was like, wow, I've never heard that perspective before. And I was so intrigued by it. And I said, I, got, I hope to God he, he is doing podcasts to have this conversation. Because I said to him afterwards that that is one of the perspectives that fathers don't hear. They hear it from everybody else's perspective, lawyers, practitioners, their family, you know, government, child support everybody but they never kind of understand you know judges and that is typically the person who is going to take everything that they know all of their abilities and make the decision on whether or not they are going to have any level of custody or parenting time with their children and so today I have with me Judge Corpening he is the chief district court judge for judicial district three which is in Wilmington around the Wilmington area of North Carolina good morning how are you doing good morning Ken glad to be with you um, so let's start. Tell me a little bit about, um, give, me your, give me your version of your bio. Sure. So um, I'm a double deacon, graduate of Wake Forest University, undergrad in law. Okay. Um, family kind of thing. My grandfather, my dad, myself, my sister, my daughter. Um, so black and gold through and through. Okay. Uh, 31 years on the bench. Uh, I first was appointed in 1991, and I've run eight times since. I'll be running for my ninth term next year. Mm -hmm. Been chief district court judge for about uh, 17 years, um, which means that I'm the scheduler, I'm the chief complaint department, but it also means I get the opportunity to work on our systems mm -hmm. and try to improve our systemic response. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a dad, husband, granddad, um, family guy. Um, we've got, my wife and I have a blended family, six grandchildren, 19 to one. Mm -hmm. um, love my life, love my job. Mm -hmm. um, blessed to live in a community where I can partner with community partners who are forward thinking and planners who are strategic thinkers. Mm -hmm. uh, 
who are willing to look for the future to better our response to the folks we serve. Uh, and I think that's an important part of my resume is that I believe that I'm a servant leader. Okay. I'm not the boss. I'm a servant leader. I serve the people who come to me. Mm-hmm. I work for them. You are, you are, you're singing my song. You are singing my song. There's so many things that you said that just resonated with me. But the one thing you said it just now, and you said it yesterday too, is you talked about the fact um, that you love your job and that you weren't always there. So talk to me about why it is you love your job and what you believe your purpose and calling is in this particular space and how you transition from where you were to where you are. I'm glad to talk about that, Ken, because it's an important part of who I am today. Some of my colleagues who have not been on the bench length of time that I have been on the bench can tell me right now what their retirement day is going to be 10 years from now. They're so unhappy. And I think that had I not had a transformation in my career, I would probably be that person and I probably wouldn't be running again next year. But um, a funny thing happened along the way. I learned to read. I learned to read about the things and issues that bring people to me. I learned to read about substance misuse and our response to folks who are mired in the effects of opioid use disorder or other substance use or misuse issues. I learned to read more about mental health and um, what drives people to our court system because of their mental health issues. Learn to read more about the impacts of trauma, about exclusionary school discipline, about school to prison pipeline, um, and realize that what we have done historically in our court system doesn't work. If you look at North Carolina data on um, recidivism for our Department of Adult Corrections, for example, about 66% of males will go back to prison, about 55% of women will go back to prison. We need to change the name, we're not correcting anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, we're housing folks, which means at the front end, when we had our first opportunity with folks, we didn't do a great job. Uh, and then, um, so that led me to do some school justice partnership work to try to keep kids in school and out of court. Uh, I mentioned to you before we went live that uh, I've partnered with our school system for decades. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a four-time PTA president as a dad, two years at elementary school, two years at middle school, declined the opportunity in high school, <laughs> um, volunteered for 25 years in schools, opening car doors and greeting students every day. Mm -hmm. Rain, shine, hot, cold, whatever, I was there. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was there encouraging dads to be involved. Because if I could be involved, then you know, any number of people could be involved. Mm -hmm. um, our school justice partnership work that we started in New Hanover County, where I live, is now going statewide in North Carolina. Okay. We're, up to, we're up to 55 counties that have school justice partnerships now. Mm -hmm. Started right here in Georgia, Clayton County, south side of Atlanta. Wow, okay. Um, my friend Steve Teske there started it in uh, the mid-2000s. I met him. We started in New Hanover in 2015, and, and now uh, it's part of the Raise the Age legislation in North Carolina. Um, uh, school districts you know, have, to, have to do the work. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, the impact, 
I think long-term uh, and the connection to dads is that um, if we keep kids in school, if we keep kids out of court, if we keep kids off the street, they're more likely to graduate. Absolutely. If they're, if they're more likely to graduate, they're more likely to be employed on a, um, with a livable wage, which positions them to be better dads. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, so as part, you know, once we are in the school justice partnership work, um, I started learning more about trauma. Okay. We started a resilience task force in Wilmington. Um, I was asked to uh, speak at a gathering of Smart Start. We screened the movie Resilience. Uh, it's resilience, the uh, the the. Biology of Stress and the Science of Hope. Okay. Great movie, hour long. Uh, it's worth a watch. It was a game changer for me. Mm. I mean, I had known something about trauma. I had talked about it in our custody mediation setting. I talk about trauma in that setting. Um, but didn't know the life, potential lifelong impacts of trauma. Mm-hmm. And I didn't fully comprehend how important that stable, caring adult in the life of the child really is. But childhood trauma can alter your life forever. Childhood trauma is um, a significant contributor to the seven out of 10 leading causes of death in America. Mm-hmm. Childhood trauma, mm-hmm. not something we did when we were 60, right. almost 70. Absolutely. What happened to us when we were kids? But that stable, caring adult can mitigate that, can be a protective factor to prevent those outcomes, which is why it's so important to have parents involved. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned ACEs because some time ago I had started a personal campaign, I guess, to convince SAMHSA that fatherlessness should be an ACE. So the way that it is masked in ACEs now is between the two components of incarcerated children and separated and divorced children. In my mind, fatherlessness is different between the two, different than the two of them. I've since broadened the perspective to include both motherlessness because fatherlessness and parentlessness is the same across the board when you look at the two of them, but because fatherlessness is so pervasive, I think that that is a specific area that we should be focused on when it comes to looking at children and their childhood experiences and how fatherlessness has impacted their lives. And the reason I talk so much about fatherlessness is because I rebel against the term fatherless. And the reason that I rebel against the term fatherless is because I believe, and it is factually true, that there is no, there is no such thing as a fatherless child. 100% of all biological children on this planet we call Earth has a biological father. The question isn't if he exists, the question is where he exists. And if you never ask the question where he exists, you'd never look for him, so you make the assumption that he doesn't exist. Problem with that is we transfer that notion to our children and we tell them that they're fatherless and they begin to start believing that he doesn't exist while their heart and their yearning continues to tell them that he does, but someone has told you that he doesn't. And that is what creates, I believe, that hole in a child's heart 
when they believe that this thing that they need and deserve so greatly doesn't exist. And so this part of this traumatic and trauma work that I want to start with, with kind of understanding, I think the compassion piece is it's very difficult for people to have any level of empathy for fathers, period, right? <clears throat> and so how do we shift this and make it about the children? If you don't want to talk about dads, let's make it about the children and let's look at what this is and how this is impacting children. When you look at the fathers that are coming before your bench, like how do you see um, childhood trauma playing itself out? So many of the dads that come to me are victims of childhood trauma themselves. Uh, you know, and I think it's important to look beyond the historical ACEs study. Um, yesterday I talked about three realms of ACEs. Some folks suggest that there are four realms of ACEs. It's such a big picture, bigger picture than the 10 questions that Folletti and Anda came up with when they studied white middle-class um, insured <laughs> adults in San Diego and the Kaiser Permanente Health System, mm -hmm. right? It's such a big picture than that. And so, you know, the, the tree, the ACEs tree has grown. Some folks are resistant to start adding questions because there hasn't been research on those questions necessarily. But, you know, for example, I've suggested to folks in my community that an ACEs question from my community is, have you hidden under the bed from gunfire? Mm -hmm. Yes. On more than one occasion. Mm -hmm. Has a sibling or parent been murdered? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but um, but it's it is uh, so so I I try to look at or I try, I try to approach every day with the notion that everyone walks in my door has been has experienced trauma and that's my starting point point. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I try to learn more about their journey that's brought them to me. So for the dad who's been absent, why has he been absent? What are the barriers that he's experienced? Is mom pushing him away? Did mom even tell him she was pregnant? Make the, make the list of questions. But what's, what's his journey? And then what can we do to get back on track? What can we do to provide a pathway to being involved? All I can do is provide the path and try to provide some motivation. But, but I see that as my role, to try to motivate involvement. And I, I reunified a dad with his two kids uh, last week. It was awesome. Mm. And he's scrambling. Mom <laughs> died of an overdose. Mm -hmm. um, and, but he's, he's, he's finding a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I told him that I honored his commitment mm -hmm. uh, because he had not been as involved as perhaps he should have been, could have been before. But when life changes happened, he stepped up and said, I'm here, I'm ready. Mm -hmm. I saw a quote on, I don't know if it's Instagram or whatever I was re looking at the other day, and it was a dad talking to his daughter, and he was saying, I'm sorry. But one of the things he said I was sorry for was he was sorry that he had a child before he was ready. And we don't take that into consideration that both moms and fathers are having children before they're ready. But I say that to say that as we kind of look at their childhood experiences, the other thing that I don't think we take into account is the traumatic experience of going through what they're going through in the courtroom, right? Like we don't take into consideration that there's some depression present, 
there's some stress present, there's some anxiety present, there's a lot of things that are present, and many of those things may be triggering traumatic things that happen in their life before that. Are you seeing a little bit of that as well? Every day, mm. every day, Ken. Uh, you know, and, and one, of, one of the parts of my presentation right in the middle yesterday was what trauma can look like when it walks in the room. Ooh. What are the physical, mental attributes, spiritual attributes? What are the different components of what that can look like in a person's life? Uh, and anxiety and activation are the most common things we see. Some folks are activated by walking in the building because of their historical experiences with court or their family's historical experience with court. And if we don't take that into account and address that at hello, then they're not hearing anything we say. And I can try to be as strong an influence in their life as I can be, but if they're not hearing me, I'm wasting my breath. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I try to recognize whatever I'm seeing as being rooted in trauma and de-escalate that mm -hmm. and give them space to reconnect, to be ready to proceed, to be ready to be a part of what we're doing mm -hmm. because I desperately need parents to be involved in what we're doing, to be engaged in what we're doing, because we're trying to empower them. I, most of my work is in child welfare. I want to empower them to be a family again. Right. And if they're not engaged, that's not going to work. Mm -hmm. And then somebody else is going to be the family for that child. And how sad is that? Mm -hmm. uh, and so I try to do little things like Good morning, Ken. Welcome. Glad to see you again. Mm -hmm. uh, and then as I listen to things, uh, I'll get reports in from DSS, from the Guardian Ad Litem. Um, the Guardian Ad Litem program in my district is always really good about giving me pictures of the kids as part of their court report. Mm -hmm. And I will make a fuss about how cute or adorable or handsome or beautiful or whatever, mm -hmm. depending on the age. But I'll make a big fuss about that. Mm -hmm. Because that means I've connected absolutely. because uh, they'll smile. Sometimes they'll shed a tear. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they'll want to show me more pictures. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll let folks come up with their, with their smartphone and show, scroll, show me pictures, uh, particularly if they've got, you know, a baby where they've been spending more and more time with a baby and they've got pictures and they want to show me. And, mm -hmm. um, and that's a way of making it feel more human for them. Helps them feel valued and heard. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that when we take the steps, which are really simple steps, to recognize the trauma, to respond effectively to that trauma, then we can engage them and get them on board and working towards more powerful solutions in their life. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's, that's the most significant change in my life in the last 10 years. I've always tried to be effective in the work that I do in court, particularly in juvenile court. I've spent, you know, I've worked in juvenile court my whole career, not exclusively. Now, by choice, I do it exclusively. Okay. Uh, since 2014, 100% of my time is child welfare and juvenile justice mm. because I've got an opportunity to change lives. At an early stage. At an early stage. Before it becomes a habit. Absolutely. Before it has deep consequences on their lives. Right. You said yesterday, which I thought was so cool, you said that there are times that you come into the court and you have what you call your calm. 
Coffee. Coffee. Yeah, calm a cup, coffee. A cup right here. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that necessary? Because I don't think we think about that, you know, judges, as you're watching traumatic event after traumatic event after traumatic event, that that wears on you. And I'll tell you this short story. I was interviewing a friend of mine in New York. He's a barber. And he said, Kenny, he said, you know, a lot of times people don't understand that barbers are probably more intimately connected to their customers than anybody else. And I said, Daryl's like, what do you mean by that? He says, he says, I get to see these guys when, when their babies are born, when their babies die, when they marry, when they divorce, when their parents die, when their siblings die. I get the full range of emotion of this individual if he's that customer. And he says, there's something about that spirit when I have my hands on their head that comes into my, that comes into my space. And he says, there are times that I find myself after being with somebody, washing my hands because I can't get out of my head what this person is going through. And I think that as an analogy, that that is probably something that also happens to judges as you're sitting there watching event after event after event, that that becomes a part of your spirit and you have to navigate that. So having that calm coffee is a way of being mindful that these things have an impact on you as well. Talk about that a little bit. I'll be glad to. My, um, my county commissioners and my board of education call me Batman. <laughs> I got, love Batman. Got my ID. <laughs> um, but I'm a human being. Um, Batman was a human being, not a super human being. Uh, and so I'm affected by the emotions of the moment. Remaining calm and being centered on the folks in front of me has to be intentional. Mm. As human beings, we react to things that happen. And so when I have someone who is activated in court because of their anxiety, because of the stress they're experiencing, because of whatever, especially if they are you know, verbal towards me, F-bombs, whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. um, the human thing and the natural response is to bow up. Mm. But I'm supposed to be the adult in the room who is calm, who is strategic about how things are supposed to go in court. And so my joke about I've got my calm coffee with me today is a reminder that I've got to be intentional about that through this whole day no matter what happens. Mm. Mindfulness is an important practice. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've got some mindfulness cards on my desk. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got a resilience app in my phone. Mm -hmm. uh, it is important for me to be connected and to stay connected and to stay calm. I'm human. There are times that my voice comes up. Uh, there are times when my anger spikes. But less than ever in my career, my experience growing up as a lawyer was that the older the judge got, the angrier they got. Wow. Okay. Converse is true with me. I'm a whole lot calmer now than I was <laughs> in 1991. I'm a whole lot more patient. My, I had a great conversation with my pastor. Um, it, it feels like it was last year that we were having lunch, but it was before COVID. So, you know, four years ago. Right, right. Back, <laughs> COVID like decades COVID ago. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he said, you know, what are the most important lessons you've learned in the last 10 years? 
I said, grace and patience. I didn't bat an eye, grace and patience. Because of the trauma that people have experienced that come to me, I've got to have grace. They can't help what they've experienced. You know, somebody didn't wake up yesterday and decide, hey, this is a great day to inject heroin in my veins. Mm. That's not how that happened. Come to find out childhood trauma is the gateway drug to heroin. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And those same folks need me to be patient because as they're anxious, the more impatient I become, the more anxious they become, and we've missed an opportunity. And we only get a few opportunities, Ken. Mm-hmm. You know, in my child welfare world, I'll see a family a couple of times, maybe before the adjudication process, and then maybe three more times before either reunification happens or we go a different path. I can't miss, I can't miss one of those opportunities. Absolutely. It's too important. Their future's at stake. And that's why I'm so thrilled that in North Carolina we're doing um, trauma-informed work across our court system. Mm-hmm. Our Chief Justice is leading that initiative. He has an ACES-informed courts task force mm-hmm. focusing on childhood trauma and the impacts on children, focusing most particularly on our juvenile courts, but across our system educating uh, the folks in our branch about the importance of this work. because. If someone walks into a clerk's office who needs help, but they're anxious, and the deputy clerk is abrupt with them because they don't feel like they have time for it, then whatever help that person needs, they're not getting. Absolutely. If someone comes to one of our magistrates and needs help, and that magistrate doesn't recognize the signs of trauma, that person's not going to get help. Mm-hmm. If someone's trying to talk to a prosecutor about their case, they're a victim. They've been traumatized by the by by their victimization. And that district attorney doesn't recognize the signs of trauma and is abrupt with that person. That person is not going to be able to tell their story. Mm -hmm. So across our court system, we're trying to be more responsive to this issue. Mm -hmm. It is, I think it's at the heart, it has to be at the heart of the culture of court Mm -hmm. that we recognize trauma and that we respond to trauma. That doesn't mean that we don't hold people accountable for, for whatever's happened, but but we can, we can look at accountability in ways other than bringing a stick every single time. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because if you think of the, the things we see in our court system, you know, most everything we see is relatively minor, but is a sign of something deeper that folks need help with. Um, and if we bring the stick every time, or if we bring the hammer every time, then we'll lose respect and then they'll lose respect for themselves. And then it's more likely that they're going to be in prison one day, mm-hmm. um, in, which know, is a terrible, which is a terrible thing. Yeah. Part of the you know, challenge, and it's interesting that you and I are here at this child support conference, um, our neighboring state, South Carolina, a couple of uh, weeks ago was, I believe, the 10th anniversary of the Walter Scott incident. And so, and the reason that I always bring that up is to try to stimulate this conversation around the importance of understanding um, the trauma of particularly non-custodial parents, uh, 
thinking about child support. You talked about when they walk into the building that they be, immediately begin to have <clears throat> traumatic thoughts around stress and depression and anxiety. And his case I always bring up because this, was a, this wasn't a young dude, right? This was a 50-year-old man who got stopped and jumped out of his car and decided to run and unfortunately was shot and killed. And when the reports came out, um, it came out that he was fearful of the fact that he might be arrested again for child support. Wow. And I thought in my mind when I saw that story, what kind of fear can a system have on an individual that would make him put his life in jeopardy because he doesn't want to go back and face whatever it is around child support. And I bring that conversation up to, to talk about something else that you were talking about towards the end of your presentation yesterday, which is what can we do? Like how can we recognize the power that we have in that space over people and the impact of that power and influence and how they've interacted with them systems that makes them do some of the things that they do which is they, 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 rather than engage, they, they flee, right? Which makes it worse when they show up to <clears throat> you. What can we do? So one of the reasons that I'm here at a child support conference talking trauma is that uh, child support workers interact with, uh, with both parents. Um, it's important for them to recognize what they're seeing and what may be leading to the behavior that they're seeing. Frustrated dad mm-hmm. makes, makes him mad. Mm-hmm. And then they're abrupt with him and then he feels that he hadn't been heard. He feels like he's getting the shaft. He feels like this isn't fair. And then he doesn't pay his child support. And then he gets picked up mm-hmm. and it starts. If child support workers are able to recognize the trauma and the stress that they're seeing, diffuse that, make sure there's clear understanding of the process, the, the legal procedures on child support. For example, in North Carolina, we've got child support guidelines. I'm sure other states do as well. Explaining the guidelines so that dad and mom see, here's, here's, here's your income, here's your income, here's, here's how the law says we have to set this child support. Here's what the judge is gonna look at. Because if there's understanding, there may be more willingness to be involved. Right. So helping, helping both parties understand the process and, and, and how child support is set, I think is an important step. But if someone's activated, they're not hearing that. So that's why I'm here talking trauma to child support workers. Mm-hmm. Because they've got to understand and then recognize ways that they can help diffuse that, calm that, make a connection so there's clear understanding about what's going on. Mm-hmm. One of the other things we need to do is to make sure that we're encouraging fathers to be involved. Fathers have not always been encouraged to be involved at separation uh, or where there's not been a marriage, where a uh, child born out of wedlock and mom you know, ignores dad, puts up barriers. Uh, our court system needs to be accessible to dads to pursue visitation. We've got, we've got a few positions in North Carolina that are called access and visitation coordinators. I think there are eight positions serving the whole state. Mm-hmm. 
but they work in child support courts to try to make sure dads are connected to resources to get visitation for their children. And I think that making that connection is important because an involved father is going to be a supportive father. A supportive father emotionally, spiritually, financially. Um, but that, that first step is being involved. Mm-hmm. Non-involved father isn't going to be there emotionally or financially or spiritually for his child. Um, one, of the, one of the things that, that young Williams did in Wilmington a number of years ago was create a fatherhood initiative. This is the child support agency creating a fatherhood initiative. Uh, And um, Carl Roberts, who was recognized at the um, meeting yesterday with the the national award, uh, is the person who came up with the idea. And folks said, "Why, why are you, why is the child support agency creating a fatherhood initiative and planning an annual fatherhood conference. And her response was because involved fathers are better fathers. Right. Right. And so we, we actively pursued that for a dozen years or so. And then there was this, that, or the other change and, you know, things fell by the wayside. But um, for the last three or four years that we did it, our target population wasn't dads because we always had trouble getting dads in the room. Mm-hmm. Our target target population was kids in foster care who were aging out in foster care. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. To try to help them understand more about parenthood, fatherhood. So for the young men, soon to be men looking like grown men already who are aging out in foster care, mm-hmm. you know, here's some of the thing that me here's some of the things it means to be a dad. Mm. And to the young women, here's some of the things it means to be a dad. Right, absolutely. Because you need to understand this too. Mm -hmm. And you need to understand how important he is. Mm -hmm. You're important, you need to understand how important he is. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the response I got from my kids in foster care was very powerful. Mm. Uh, And I hate that that fell by the wayside, but but that was a real, that was, it was almost spiritual. Yeah. You know, talk to those kids. But we need to, and we're going to stay. I've, I've found a new friend. And so, and we're going to help rebuild that. I love what you're doing. I think that, you know, from several of my capacities, um, I want to commit to helping you amplify this complicate, this conversation. Because I think that this conversation around trauma-informed, you know, care and resiliency needs to, as you say, not only spread across the judicial system, but also the administrative system, whether it is child support, housing, substance abuse, education, across all federal agencies. We should be talking about trauma-informed care as it relates to parents, period. Um, You said something, and you ended, like, yesterday in a space that I always in, which is, I'm going to wind back because there was something else I wanted to say to you as well. I'm very literal in terms, and I think you said it yesterday, terms matter, words matter. It really, really matters. And one of the words that I am beginning to eliminate from my vocabulary is visitation. And I said this yesterday in my workshop that I did. We did a workshop on um, how do you work with um, incarcerated parents and parents returning from incarcerated, returning citizens. And I said that one of our biggest issues is that we keep telling dads they're visiting. Dads don't visit. 
they parent. parent. So when they come to a judge, if everyone is saying visiting, the judge is thinking I'm only giving him visiting time. I'm not giving him parenting time. And it always draws me back to my own personal case, right? I've only been in court one time, probably two days. And the judge that we had, I love her to death. Every time I go back to New York, I try to send a card or do something when I'm there. And when we went into court, um, um, we were there and she looked at us and she said, the two of you seem like two intelligent individuals. Why are you here? She goes, I think that the two of you have the ability to work this out with, without my intervention. And I suggest that you go to mediation. And it was the best thing that ever happened for the two of us. Our daughter is like if the, the poster child for two parents who understood that it was equally important for us to be in every aspect of her life. And so the interesting thing is, when we were going through, the narrative was you either get a weekend or you get one week here, one week there, or you get two weeks in the summer and nothing else. And we came in and we said, we want a two, we want a, a two, two, three schedule. She's like, what is that? It's like two, two, three. I said, on one week I get Monday, Tuesday, then she gets Wednesday, Thursday, and then we get three day weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And, <coughs> and, they, and we pick up and we drop off on Sunday. The next week she gets Monday, Tuesday, I get Wednesday, Thursday, she gets a three day weekend. And on Thanksgiving and Christmas, we decide which five days, who's going to take the five days, and then we pick back up on that Monday. She says, I've never seen that before. I've never done that before. She goes, you think that's a lot? And I said to her, I said, if you have the expectations of me to engage in things in my daughter's life, like education, bonding time, um, um, parenting time, then weekends and week ons and offs doesn't work for me. We have to be intertwined. We have to be intertwined into my daughter's life. And she said, "Okay, let's try it." And it worked like a charm. It really worked like a charm. And then when she got a little older, because our relationship improved, her mother and I, we loosened up a little bit because she's now thirteen, fourteen. Okay. You don't have to do two, two, three. Like, if you don't feel like coming over here, then don't. She wasn't a bad, she wasn't a suitcase child. She had everything that was at my house that was at her mother's house. She never transferred a suitcase. And it was so much, so effective that the student, that the, that the teachers, when we would go to parent-teacher night, the parents never knew that we weren't together. Or the teachers never knew that we weren't together. Because every time she said home, no one knew what she was talking about. She was talking about whatever she was talking about with respect to where she was going. When she said, I'm going home, like nobody knew that she had two choices of home. Right. My right. house or, their, or, or her house. And so I wanted to kind of draw back on that visitation thing because I think when we're talking, so we're working with fathers in, in, in Atlanta, and one of the things I've been talking to them about is um, own your fatherhood. Right, own your fatherhood. You have just as much of a right to be engaged in every access at, um, aspect of your child's life as mom does. You don't visit, you parent. And so if I keep telling you you're visiting, you treat your child like a visitor. 
Your child is not a visitor when they come to your house. It's not your job to solely entertain them, right? You have to parent them. And I'll tell you this story. This is the last, and this is very short. I remember one time my daughter and I, she must have been four or five years old. And it was a Sunday afternoon, and she came in, and I was sitting on the couch, and she was doing something. And she said, Daddy, she goes, where are we going today? And I said, what? And she was like, where are we going today? And I was like, what do you mean? She goes, are we supposed to be going somewhere? I was like, we're not supposed to be going. And then I realized what she was, what was happening when she asked. And she came and sat down. I said, you know, I said, sometimes um, families just enjoy being with each other. Like, we don't have to have something to make us happy. We don't have to go to the park and we don't have to go here. I said, sometimes it's just kind of cool to just be in the same place with each other and to know, for me to know that you're in your room playing and for you to know I'm out here watching a game. So part of that might have been I just wanted to watch the games. I was telling her something, but it was just profound to me <clears throat> to even say that to her. And she got it. And she fell into the space where it wasn't an expectation that every time she saw me, we had to do something fun. That on the weekends that we didn't, we played Uno. You know, we played Trouble. We just watched TV together. We got our favorite movies together. And I saw, so that visitation thing, I think that as we begin to really get deeper into these spaces, that we gotta reevaluate the words that we use so that we are very intentional on what we expect from our parents, particularly our fathers. So I'm going to take the parenting time piece back. That's, we use the word visitation in child welfare court across America. Mm -hmm. But my custody mediators don't use that word. When they do parenting agreements, it's about parenting time. So that resonated with me when you mentioned it because my mediators are so good at that, but the rest of us aren't so good at that. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to take that back. But um, you mentioned reentry. I want to share with you real quickly something that I do. If we've got just a minute. Mm -hmm. um, I've got a number of incarcerated parents in my caseload. Incarcerated for a variety of reasons. But when they come to court, I try to make sure that their kids are there. So they get a chance to sit together, to, um, to be back in my chambers together, handcuffs off, be able to, you know, for little kids to be able to jump up in daddy's lap, mm -hmm. love on them for a little bit. I've had great cooperation from our uh, Department of Corrections guards that bring them from the prisons or from the county jail, had great uh, support. Um, I've had some dads meet their babies for the first time in my wow. courtroom. Wow. Uh, I've got a case now that started just a few weeks ago and the dads come to court twice had the baby there and we've made sure that he was there early and the baby was there early so they went back in my chambers and he's not a threat to that baby mm -hmm. uh, and so they were able to sit and interact and coo and cuddle and you know um, and then I let mom sit right with him and have the baby together there in court instead of sitting at opposite ends of the courtroom mm -hmm. so that he could hold his baby during the proceeding I think it's a powerful message that we can send that you may be incarcerated, but your dad. Absolutely. And uh, kids, kids don't see 
the handcuffs or the shackles or whatever other security measures that they've got to use in transporting folks who are in custody, kids see dad mm-hmm. or kids see mom. Um, I learned that lesson from a little girl who was in my caseload. Her dad was in prison or in jail awaiting charges of murder. But he always wanted to come to court. And I was asked one day if he could visit with his daughter. And, I, and this is, I don't know, 15 years ago. I said, no, just no. Mm. And he was coming out of the back, um, full you know, hookup for transport. She and the relative who she was living with came out of the waiting room which was in a, we had a back area for kids who were waiting. And she came out as he was coming out and she saw him and squealed, daddy, 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 and went and ran and jumped in his arms. Mm. I don't know how he caught her. (laughs) I do not know how he caught her, but he caught her and she squeezed his neck and he held on to her. I love you, daddy. I love you, daddy. I love you, daddy. Changed man. Mm. I've made it happen ever since. Every opportunity I get, dad or mom, whichever, who comes from a place of incarceration, gets to see their kid while they're with me. Mm. Um, I value that relationship, and they need to know that I value that relationship. You know what? Those murder charges were dismissed. Wow. Those murder charges were dismissed, and he was still a part of his daughter's life because I let him see her whenever we came to court. That's the testimony story. Yeah. So, so valuing that dad, no matter what, is so important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was not just important to him. It was important to that little girl. Absolutely. And so from my perspective, because I hear a lot from lawyers about my client has a right to see their child. That child has a right to see their parent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I set expectations, you know, when... When I used to sit in family court, dads would lobby for more parenting, more parenting time. See, I'm trying to learn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say, okay, well, my expectation is that you exercise that parenting time mm-hmm. because your child has a right to see you. Absolutely. Yeah, that's um, you know, one of those in my earlier days when I used to do this work, I used to always talk about this whole notion of winning and losing. Mm-hmm. And it was in part of my presentation, and it was like this whole notion that when parents go to court, um, one of the parents walk out and they say, I won. Mm. And I'm like, that's such a toxic um, statement to make because if you won, that means the other parent lost. And no parent wants to lose when it comes to their children, right? And that's why I think, you know, not all fathers, but most fathers get so upset because they are feeling like they're losing, and, you know, and I think that this space that we're in when it comes to humans, right, we're like no other agency, right? Like nobody gets, well, some people do, gets mad when the light turns red, right? They don't have an emotional attachment to the street light. They don't have any, no other agencies have that kind of emotional attachment like, like parents have to their children, which is make, what makes this place so emotionally charged because we are talking about children. Um, and we're talking about, and the reason that it is so emotionally charged is not because <clears throat> parents don't care for their children. It is because they care for their children so much. So this whole notion that 
fathers don't care about their children. The family court is evidence that they evident that they do when they show up and not dragged in the court like some. And we don't take, you know, we don't, when we're doing our work, uh, we don't shy away from, yeah, there's some guys out there that needs to be dragged in. They need to be, they, they need to be raked across the coals because they have totally disconnected. Um, but I would submit to you that those dads too have some level of traumatic experience and trauma that is unresolved, which is why they are acting the way that they're acting. And that needs to be recognized and dealt with as well. And to your point, um, everybody as Christian men, I'm sure, um, as you said, you're a double deacon. I love double deacons. And so um, redemption is for everybody. Everybody gets to make mistakes, and everybody should have the chance of, of coming back with some level of redemption and saying, you know what, I'm sorry for doing that, but that's not who I am. That's not who I'm going to be. Um, I'm going to be somebody different, and I'm going to change your life by changing mine. You know, and I think that that's where we should be going. Any last words, Judge? Again, it's just been a real pleasure to be with you today. Um, this trauma work that I've been engaged in is the most important work of my career. Mm. Uh, and I'm looking forward to connecting with you again. Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for joining I Am Dad podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Braswell. Uh, my guest today is J.H. Judge. Um, Corpening. Um, he is out of North Carolina, my home state. I love North Carolinians. So when he said it, I had an instant connection to him. Make sure you join us each and every Sunday. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next Sunday. God bless you, and take care. Thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us. You've been listening to I Am Dad Podcast. We hope that you have been informed, encouraged you to think, or even inspired your heart for the love of dads. The conversation does not end here. Come back and join us next week. Same time, same place. Or you can continue the dialogue on our I Am Dad Facebook page. We also invite you to listen to past episodes, learn more about us, and keep up with special activities by visiting IamDadPodcast.com. That's IamDadPodcast.com. Until next time, I leave you with this reminder of manhood from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child... I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Because of this reminder, I will always understand that I am dad, period. <laughs> <laughs>